Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into this great topic of theology of the body. We are in Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, God, Sex, and the Universal Longing. And so what we're about is continuing our exploration into how to better understand uh, the complementarity of male and female, which isn't reduced to gender male and female, but also includes a deeper understanding of our masculinity and femininity. And it's to remember that it is not one and the same thing to say male, female, masculine, feminine, right? Male and female speaks to the genders, right? Masculine and feminine really gets into the, the deeper persona, who we are as created in the image and likeness of God, and how God has endowed us with particular gifts, with particular virtues, with particular attributes, if you will, as it relates to our masculinity and our femininity. So uh, that's very important. And I had Chris Seibert with me last week, and as we talked about complementarity, one of the key pieces we highlighted was how there is something deeply satisfying together when that which is masculine and that which is feminine come together, right? Uh, We just don't see this in male and female, but also in the natural world as it relates to something like rocks and water. Uh, There is something deeply masculine about a rock, a large rock, sturdy, strong, firm, and yet there's something deeply feminine about uh, bodies of water. They give life. They are fertile. Uh, there's a great deal of mystery to them and the way in which they move. And, and of course, when the water comes crashing up upon the rock, therein lies what is uh, deeply satisfying. It's no wonder why waterfront property is the most expensive property in the world, because whether we realize it or not, we long for that kind of natural communion, because as we are created in the image and likeness of God, we are born for that deeper union. And so in the natural world, there is certainly much to draw from in the richness of the symbolism underneath it. Now, as we talk about complementarity, we can also speak to the word complementary. So to speak to what is complementary then, is to also speak to what is opposite. We use in art such phrases as complementary colors. By complementary, we mean colors that when placed next to each other, create the strongest contrast possible for those particular colors. So such pairs as red and green, blue and yellow, due to their striking color clash, complement each other. That is to say, they draw their uniqueness out. It's as if uh, blue would say to yellow or red would say to green. There is something dazzling about you. There's something unique about you. There's something irrepeatable about you. There's something uh, mysterious about you. There's something that is so unlike me that I want to get to know more of you, right? 
And yellow says back to blue, the same thing. Or green says back to red, the same thing. Okay. Another word for complementary is what? Opposite. Colors that oppose each other are drawn to each other. Male and female are drawn to each other. Just as complementary colors are deeply satisfying together, and the rock and the water are deeply satisfying together, so is a man and woman deeply satisfied together. So this would be another way to tease out, if you will, or draw out this understanding of complementarity. That is, to see this in light of uh, what is masculine and feminine, or also certainly uh, what is uh, complementary and colors uh, afford us an analogy to better understand that. Because, my dear friends, <laughs> when man sees woman, what does he say? There's something dazzling about you. There's something beautiful about you. There's something intoxicating about you. There's something mysterious about you. And the woman says to man the same thing. I'm dazzled by you. I'm taken by you. I'm gripped by you. This is the nature of what is complementary. All right, with that, let us get into chapter two. And chapter two is titled again, The Starvation Diet. Now remember that Christopher West lays out chapters two, three, and four as what? Quote unquote, gospels. Because not every gospel, although perpetrated as good news by the culture, is actually good news. So it is our job to test each one, each gospel, poke holes in it, see if it holds water, see if it pans out. Okay, and these three gospels are the starvation diet, uh, fast food, and uh, the banquet. Now, these different gospels, what do they do? Well, they lay claim to our love and allegiance by orienting our desire in a given direction. And the direction we choose to direct our desire will, will ultimately determine our approach to, well, pretty much everything. <laughs> so if we are seeking happiness, the question is this, is our desire directed towards that which truly satisfies, toward that which truly fulfills, completes us, makes us whole? If not, we will need to redirect our desire toward that which does satisfy, or at least that gospel that offers a trustworthy hope of that deeper satisfaction. In short, if we are to find that satisfaction we long for, we must learn how to direct our desire according to God, to cooperate in God's grace. Cooperatio, right? To operate with what? God, God's grace. And so, uh, if we do this, then uh, God will launch us to our eternal destiny, as Christopher uh, West likes to speak to it. Now, as an opening reflection to get into the heart of what chapter 2 is all about, very few of us actually thought when we were young boys and, and young girls that when we were dreaming of our first kiss in those wonder years, that it was actually something that belonged to God, or or maybe when we were listening to our, our favorite song, for me it was... Uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, or even watching her favorite MTV video and staying with Michael Jackson, it was probably Thriller, that we're actually directing our desire for God and not even realizing it. That we were longing for, for life, for beauty, for freedom, for adventure, for intimacy, for affirmation, 
for love and union. And, and, and we didn't even realize it, nor would we. It's unfortunate, but true, that what we learn about Christianity in our upbringing rarely connects the dots for us between what we feel and desire in our hearts and what Christianity holds out to us. You know, more often than not, eros, that human erotic physical love, is often considered the enemy of holiness, whereas a list of burdensome rules and rote prayers are presented as the means to it. We look at the faith, uh, as especially the church, as some punitive, institutional, authoritarian, waving her finger. But this is not what the church is about. And yet, this is how it is often portrayed. John Eldridge, who we've spoken to before, laments that uh, the way Christianity is often presented could not seem more irrelevant to our deepest desires. Regardless of where you go to church, there is nearly always an unspoken list of what you shouldn't do, and a list of what you may do. And this, we are told, is the good news. Know the right thing, do the right thing, this is life. And what do we say to that, though? (laughs) No! The deeper we go in our faith, the more we come to understand that this desire we have is actually given to us by God. We know now that this is not life. That is the life Christ came to give us to the full, as John 10.10 reminds us. And as John goes on to remind us, this life to the full is a wedding feast, a feast of love, joy, delight, bliss, and ecstasy beyond all telling. What do we call it? Heaven. And all the beauty and joys of creation sing of this wedding feast. Point to it, predict it, and are meant to prepare us for it, especially, my dear friends, our own creation as what? Sexual beings, male and female. And that vehement flame of eros that draws us together as one. Reflecting upon this stream of thought, Christopher West in his work, Fill These Hearts, says this, In my lectures over the years, I've asked countless thousands these questions. How many of you were raised in a Christian home? And he says, nearly everyone in my audience raises their hands. Then I ask, how many of you would say that in your Christian upbringing, there was open, honest, normal, healthy conversation about God's glorious, beautiful, wonderful plan for making us male and female, and how many of you learned growing up that the one flesh union is meant to be a foreshadowing of the eternal ecstasy and bliss that awaits us in heaven? Of course, as he notes consistently, he gets about a 1-2% to response. If these numbers are a fair representation, this means what? When it comes to the hunger of Eros, about 98-99% to of us were raised on what Christopher West calls the starvation diet gospel, or at the very least, a malnourished gospel. As Christopher West notes, (laughs) I hope it was never actually stated this way, but the general message hanging in the air for a lot of people raised in Christian homes was this. Your desires, especially your sexual desires, are bad and they will only get you in trouble. So you need to repress, ignore, or otherwise annihilate them. But follow all of these rules and you'll be a good, upstanding Christian citizen. You see, my friends, John Paul II's vision of theology of the body counters this whole idea and says, no, the desire inside of us was put there by God. 
and as such, it is to glorify God. Simply put, that message that Christopher West talks about isn't Christianity. It is what is called Stoicism, a kind of lifeless legalism. To kill our desires is suicide of the soul. It is once again John Eldridge who notes, and I love this, he says, this tragedy is increased tenfold when this suicide is committed under the conviction that this is precisely what Christianity recommends. We have never been more mistaken. You know, John Paul II was convinced, and many before him, but he certainly drew it out, that this stoic brand of religion is responsible for the fact that large numbers of people raised in Christian homes in the Western world have abandoned their faith as adults. In practice, legalism and we can also say moralism can make people want to run in precisely the other direction, indulging in anything and everything and inviting others to do the same. In the work, the love that satisfies uh, Chris, Derek, and I, we talked about how Hugh Hefner experienced this. And here he gets in, Christopher West gets into uh, the pop singer Madonna and how this modern icon of sexual liberation was raised, as she says, in a very Catholic house. And certainly her reflections on her religious upbringing echo the sentiments of a large swath of the population. Listen to what she says. So religion was a big part of my life, going to school, reading the Bible, praying to Jesus, going to confession, thinking about good, bad, what's a sin, what's an original sin, what's a venial sin, but that's all morals and ethics, she says. So why did she grow up wanting to break all the rules? Listen to what she had to say. Because the rules didn't make sense, that's why. They don't answer the big questions. I never really got a lot of my question answered, so consequently, I just sort of moved away from religion. I don't reject the idea that Jesus Christ walked on this earth and he was a divine being, but I reject the religious behavior of any religious organization that does not encourage you to ask questions and do your own exploration. Listen to what Madonna just said. My dear friends, have we not discussed at length the importance to ask questions? so as to have a deeper understanding of who we are and where we are going. John Paul II, as then Carol Wojtyla, was asking the deepest questions about who we are and where we are going to explore, but explore in principle. If there's no one to guide you, that exploration, minus the principles, will be like a train heading towards a broken trestle. It will not end well for you. So we have to encourage the question, the exploration, but in principle, and we have to have answers. So as it relates to Madonna, because she had no direction, she simply took her questions elsewhere. And who can't understand why? I mean, if Christianity is understood as merely a legalistic adherence to a moral code that makes no allowance for a person seeking, why would anyone want to continue practicing such a vapid faith? Jesus did not come to squelch our seeking. He encouraged us to do what? Ask, seek, and knock. Go to Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, and what do we find? For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
the first words placed in the mouth of Christ in John's gospel are what? Not follow all these rules or you're going to hell. Rather, Christ probes our hearts with a question. What are you looking for? It's really interesting. There's something important to the firsts of Christ, if you will. We today often ask the question, what was your baby's first word? There's something about firsts, huh? (laughs) What was Christ's first words? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you long for? He knows. Jesus knows. He's God. He wants us to start critically thinking about who we are and where we are going. And what better place to start than what we're looking for? What is our desire? What is our deepest ache? Huh? I mean, what was Christ's first miracle? The wedding feast at Cana? Huh? In one verse, he's asking us the question, what are you looking for? And just a few verses later, we have the first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. Because he understands that what we are looking for here on earth is union with other that casts a light between Christ and his church. Firsts are important. Firsts are important. Christ wants us to live courageously from our deepest most ardent desires, not to stifle them. And what's needed to progress on the journey of the Christian life is a renewed depth of desire, not a death of desire. You know, those who see desire itself as the enemy of the Christian life have a very skewed notion of Christianity and their own humanity. This is why theology of the body is so important You know, they're typically locked into this pessimistic, suspicious view of the human heart as utterly depraved, and thus ultimately incapable of desiring and choosing good. Although some of the first Protestant reformers held this idea, as have some Catholic thinkers, my dear friends, the church has never believed this. This bleak and inherently suspicious view of human life is actually a heresy known as Jansenism. We are, of course, affected deeply by original sin, and we must engage in a lively battle at times against this interior inclination to abuse good things. We call this concupiscence, huh? But we are not powerless to resist temptation, and with the help of grace, we can learn to untwist, if you will, what sin has twisted in us in order to reclaim all that is true, good, and beautiful. It's interesting if you were to turn to Pope Francis's Marian devotion, he has really seized this devotion to Mary as the undoer of knots, and he's encouraged us to pray to Mary as the undoer of knots. What does he mean by that? Well, he wants us to turn to Mary so that she might help us undo, untwist, <laughs> to untwist, undo the knots that we find ourselves entangled in because of the choices we have made. Huh? I might encourage some of you listeners out there to go online and to Google Mary Undoer of Knots. There's a great series of prayers there, and it's actually a novena. As it relates to Jansenism, what can we say about this? Well, as all heresies are named after a person, this is uh, no different. Cornelius Jansen, he was a 16th century uh, Flemish bishop, and he believed that people were utterly powerless to resist temptation. His teaching, which spread through the seminary system in Europe and then to America, cast a shadow of suspicion over, well, pretty much, my friends, everything. 
creating this oppressive scrupulosity that still passes today in the minds of many as the Christian way. And it's in this context that Christopher West turns to a 1985 film, Heaven Help Us, a film that is set in an all-boys Catholic high school in the mid-1960s. In one particular scene, the young men of St. Basil's High are quite, uh, we could say, riled up in the presence of the virgin martyr girls who have come for the high school mixer. At the start of the dance, the uptight Father Abruzzi, played by Wallace Shawn, who, oh, by the way, is that actor who, in The Princess Bride, that movie that many of us have seen, uh, coined that word, inconceivable, uh, lectures the students in this movie as follows. Now listen to what Father Abruzzi has to say. You're all at an age now when you're perhaps beginning to notice the difference between the boys and the girls. And just as she is in every other important moment of your life, the church is here to guide you. Many of you will be experiencing certain <clears throat> feelings, feelings which you might be inclined to confuse with love. But ladies and gentlemen, never confuse love with the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. Lust is the beast within you, the beast that wants to consume you and then spit you out into the eternal fires of hell where for all eternity your blood will boil, your bones will burn, and your moral will will be reduced to a putrid black slime. And for what? For a few moments of weakness that led you to admire the shape of uh, someone's body? Uh, any questions? And again, Christopher West is highlighting this whole Jansenist idea. Now, we wouldn't suspect that anyone actually received a lecture as over-the-top as this. The point of this caricature from Christopher West, of course, is to exaggerate for comic effort, but in the process to make a point. This humorous scene makes the same point Benedict XVI made when he lamented that people have been warped and intimidated by Jansenism and by any form of rigorism and negative appraisal of sexuality that ultimately has found its way into the church. But we can also acknowledge that some of what Father Abruzzi says in his lecture is actually true. For example, it is very important that we not confuse lust with love. We've talked about immodesty as not an invitation to love, but an invitation to lust. So the church really is here to guide us in these important questions. Now that being said, as it relates to Father Abruzzi's words, even where his words might be right, his manner of presenting them is still way off. And I think there's an important point here that Christopher West gets into. When the words are true, but their presentation is off, it's a case of uh, what Christopher West calls right words, wrong music. Uh, what affects the heart more, the words or the melody? This is an important question. What affects the heart more, the words or the melody? We've talked about music in the past. Chris and I were talking about the importance of music last week. Music is the language of the soul, a delight to the mind, a pleasure to the ear. We may have been given correct teaching in our Christian upbringings, but if it was set to the wrong music, that is, if Christian teaching was presented in a dry, cold, mechanical, doctrinaire way, our hearts didn't and even couldn't <laughs> respond openly and positively. Extending the analogy, no matter how awesome, 
the characters and the plot line, if a movie has an embrace of soundtrack, you'll still want to leave the theater. Now, over time, of course, the pendulum swings in the other direction. Today, many Christian denominations and various groups within the Catholic Church have adjusted not only the music, but the actual content of Christ's teaching as well. We see this so much. They may be singing a more welcoming tune, but it's not a genuine song if it's watering down the truth about what it means to be fundamentally human. And again, for Christopher West, this approach too creates its own kind of starvation, its own kind of emptiness. What we're starved for in this starvation, diet gospel as he calls it, is the beauty of truth. When Christian teaching is presented without beauty, what happens to the heart? It is turned off and shuts down even if what's being presented is true. As Christopher West says, when Christian teaching is set to an ugly tune, so to speak, for example, when the presentation of truth is tinged with self-righteousness or condemnation or accusation or judgmentalism, the truth can come across as an affront to our hearts. I think we've all experienced this. When this happens, our hearts do what? They revolt with good reason because we were made for beauty. We yearn for it. And when the version of Christianity that is presented to us doesn't supply what we're looking for, we seek it elsewhere. This, my friends, is what Pope Francis has intoned the new evangelization with. He's not negotiating core principles. Don't be confused by the mass secular media. No. Understand that what he wants us to see is that when you intone Christianity with charity, reverence, rooted in truth. It is not the hammer on the nail. It is the bloom of the flower. It is an invitation. And what's interesting about this as it relates to Pope Francis is, oh, be rest assured, he still is very strong in a lot of what he has to say. We have noted on many occasions in our reflections into Pope Francis, he has some strong things to say. Calling Europe an infertile grandmother. I mean, he has strong things to say. But he has, in many ways, endeared himself to the people because of his love for them. Now, it's a whole other conversation to have how the secular mass media has usurped the truth of Pope Francis to create its own narrative. But nonetheless, be rest assured, Pope Francis has endeared himself to many because of the way in which he engages people. Now, why are we talking about this? Because as Christopher West notes... Many people have rejected Christianity, not because they haven't heard it, but because of the way in which it was presented. This imposition, this browbeat, this coercion. Jesus Christ invites. Okay, just by way of closing here, turning to Christopher West's words, when we are starved for beauty, something dangerous happens. As with an unfed dog, our hunger can become ravenous. If on the one hand, we scorn truth without beauty, on the other hand, we porn beauty without truth. I read that and I just thought that it was so striking. Listen to this. If on the one hand, we scorn truth without beauty, on the other hand, we porn beauty without truth. And he goes on to close. By this, I mean, we reduce beauty to the merely physical level, cut off from any higher truth and fixate on idealized image of perfect physical beauty for the sake of selfish 
based gratification. My friends, we have been endowed with truth, beauty, and goodness. Enter into a personal relationship with God, and the grace of God will enliven this truth, beauty, and goodness, and give us the eyes to see right from wrong what is scorn and porn versus what is truth and beautiful. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, The website is joeholcraft.org.